Hi, this is Iking Reyes, and you're on The Inspiring Leader. It's a podcast where we talk about things and stuff about work, life, and learning. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Benito L. Tihanki. He's an industry-recognized management educator, award-winning newspaper columnist, and board member of the International Humanistic Management Association. Doctor, the last time that you were here, you spoke about humanistic management as one of your advocacies. And I'm really curious, what is humanistic management and how is it different from traditional management in business? And uh, as an additional question, isn't that just applying management ethics into the way you manage your business? Yes, so I'm really excited about our conversation this evening. I've been teaching management for a long time, since 1999, but I've actually been teaching since 83. And I took management as an undergraduate degree. And we were taught that management is basically achieving the goals of the organization through people. And we were told that we were to think of two things, effectiveness and efficiency. And so what what are the things you will notice there? The goals are achieved through people. So right away, you ask yourself, how are people treated in this type of management? They're treated as instruments because the goals are the most important thing. The people are what you achieve the goals through. So humanistic management shifts away from this point of view. People are not things, they're not instruments. They're actually the goal of management itself. So in humanistic management, the goal is to enable human flourishing. So if we look at the the two E's, effectiveness and efficiency, as your question pointed out, we add the third E, which is ethics. So the summary answer to your question is that humanistic management is different from traditional management because it is achieving organizational goals in partnership with people, not through people, but in partnership with them. And one of the key goals is actually to enable human beings to flourish, to develop, so that at the end of any organizational activity, any organizational project, once it's done, people feel that they have become better as human beings. So this is basically what humanistic management is all about. Why are you advocating this? Is it based on a local context? Is this your personal advocacy? Or is there a global movement behind this? Well, it's both. I've always been thinking about this, even as a local management educator and even as a manager, because I also served as a manager in the university setting since uh, 1985. And I was always asking myself, you know, I used to be a really task-oriented person. And I was always asking myself, sure, I felt good when I was achieving program goals, project activities, but I was looking at people and I was asking myself, is this all there is? Just ticking the boxes and saying, I achieved this goal, I launched this new program, I garnered this award for our activities, etc. But when I was looking at people, I felt the people were melting in the process. In fact, when I was teaching managers in the MBA program, they would always use the word toxic. I would always ask them, how's work? And then they would always say, toxic. And I would always tease them, what do you mean? Are there gas fumes in your workplace? And then they would say, no, sir, the work is so stressful. And my boss is a beep, you know? So I told myself, there has to be a better way of managing. So that was when I began to personally advocate for this type of people-centered management. But then, maybe some years back, maybe five to seven years back, during a conference in uh, the U.S., I stumbled upon this organization. It's called the International Humanistic Management Association. And then I also started reading scientific articles on humanistic management. And this is when I discovered that there were other scholars and teachers and management practitioners all over the world who were also advocating this kind of people-centered management. So I got encouraged by this. In fact, I joined the International Humanistic Management Association. I am now an officer of this association. It gave a bigger platform to my personal advocacy, which actually came from my personal experience and reflection. In fact, just to to give you an example, I used to reflect on my management experience and then I would talk to some of my subordinates. Even though I felt a success, when I would speak to them, I could see how deeply affected and sometimes deeply hurt they were from the experience of implementing our projects. All of these were not within my consciousness. 
it was not intended. So, but people are not assertive when they're undergoing stress. And I suppose I was also not sensitive. So I got the work done, I got the tasks done. So in a way, humanistic management is like a transformative experience for me. It, it was a wake-up call. But then I reflected, why was I insensitive? Then I realized it's because I was never taught about management that was centered on people. As I said earlier, management was achieving goals through people. And the goal was to be effective and efficient. In fact, I looked through my old textbooks since I started taking management sometime in 1980. And there, there it was in all the textbooks. Effectiveness, efficiency. Of course, there was leading, right? Planning, organizing, leading, and control. But leading and control was essentially how to harness human effort to pursue goals. It was never about taking care of people. And uh, that gave me really that, that motivation in a way to reform management practice and even management teaching. So it comes from a personal place, but I was also encouraged by discovering this, this huge global platform that is trying to do the same thing. Sir, what are the current activities that you're doing right now or projects or programs to champion humanistic management? I've done uh, a number of things since I started this advocacy. Uh, the first and most frequent thing I do is I write business columns. So uh, back in 2005, we started this uh, business column in Manila Times entitled Managing for Society. I believe it was the first business column that had this slant about what management is about that is not about simply being effective and efficient. So it's been running since way back 2005. In fact, in uh, 2019, it garnered the Best Business Column Award from the Catholic Mass Media Awards, which means that it was resonating with some, with some people, the message of uh, humanistic management and uh, the related topic of socially responsible management. And I get a lot of responses from those who read the column. And in fact, uh, linking to the international organization, I invite members of the International Humanistic Management Association to also write columns in Managing for Society. But I don't only write columns for, for Manila Times. I also write columns for Business World, uh, for Manila Standard Today, and even uh, Business Mirror, and even the Inquirer. So the key is to, to plant the ideas out there that there are alternative ways of looking at humanistic management. The other uh, way we've tried to advocate this is to sign up with the United Nations Principles for Responsible Management Education movement. After the global financial crisis, and I'm sure you remember this, 2008, there was really this huge reflection among business schools because they said, you know, all the top business schools, right? Wharton, Harvard, Stanford, they asked themselves, why is it that practically in all the major business scandals that wipe out equity, uh, cause massive pollution, sometimes even uh, are shown to involve huge scandals, there is usually an MBA involved. And so they reflected. And part of their realization is that the way management is being taught is really not very socially responsible. The idea is to produce business management managers that are so aggressive, so bottom line driven that they they ram through any objection and they use their powers of persuasion to convince the business to proceed in a certain way. And some say the global financial crisis was the result of this very testosterone driven, uh, take no prisoners approach to business, right? But of course, it wasn't the first time. At the turn of the century, you will remember the business scandals involving Enron, WorldCom, and so on. Well, guess what? In all those scandals, MBAs were also involved. So the business schools said, well, we need to do something. So they formed the United Nations Principles for Responsible Management Education. We call it UN Prime. So there are about 700 business schools involved there. And the advocacy of Prime, which is why we were the first university to sign up to Prime. That's P-R-M-E. You know, we, we pronounce it Prime principles for responsible management education is that the business schools have to be aware that they are part of the problem. So therefore, uh, in fact, our first meeting was in the United Nations in Manhattan. Well, guess what? Manhattan is also where Wall Street is. So the United Nations was saying that we need to do something because otherwise Wall Street will keep causing global explosions. And many of those went through our schools. So can we engage the business schools to do something about it? So that is a global advocacy. We reform our curricula. We uh, involve business leaders who are more socially responsive, more ethically oriented, and it's an ongoing effort. I think there are now about 700 business schools 
that are part of this advocacy. And I, as part of uh, being Prime, I invited uh, six other schools locally to join Prime as well, uh, like the University of Mindanao, of course, other LaSalle schools, and even the Ateneo, I invited them to join. So if you look at the Prime website, these are the local business schools. Of course, Asian, the Asian Institute of Management was also an early signatory, also around the same time, 2009. Uh, we also changed the textbooks. I advocated changing the textbook because as I, as I told you, when I was reflecting on my own practice, I looked at the textbooks that they used to teach us and there was hardly any, any mention of caring for people there except to help them become more productive to achieve uh, goals. So we looked for a textbook that was uh, more humanistic and we were able to find one. It was written by Bruno Dick and uh, Michael Newbert. The title is just management, but if you look at it, it they, they define management as a multi-stream, meaning when you manage, you're thinking of the welfare of multiple stakeholders simultaneously. And they contrasted that with mainstream. Mainstream is mainly you're looking at the bottom line and individual benefit. So it was fantastic. In fact, we invited the author himself, Bruno Dick, to become a visiting scholar. So he came over here. Uh, he's a Canadian professor from the University of British Columbia. And we're close friends now. And we're now using the new edition of his uh, textbook, uh, which is now even more advanced, his 2019 edition. So the first edition we used was the 2010 edition. So. So we advocated the use of that textbooks also to, with other schools, and we're still working on that advocacy now. And finally, I've advocated this also with the professional associations. Right now, I'm a member of the Management Association of the Philippines. In fact, I used to chair the CSR committee. Now I'm a member of the Shared Prosperity Committee of the Management Association of the Philippines. And guess what? Uh, we advocated the release of the Covenant for Shared Prosperity. During the pandemic, as we have seen, uh, businesses, the big businesses especially, have had a wake-up call that so many Filipinos have been suffering from inequality even before the pandemic. But with the pandemic, it was revealed how bad the situation is. Because even if you tell people to socially distance so that they will not spread the disease, well, how can they do that if their houses have 10 people packed in them? It's, it's, it cannot be done. It's ridiculous. The living conditions are just so bad. So what happened was through this covenant for shared prosperity, 26 business organizations led by the Management Association of the Philippines, uh, initiated by our committee, is promoting this covenant. So essentially, when a business signs up for the covenant, it is committing to manage business in a way that takes care of people, takes care of the various stakeholders, including, of course, the customers, the suppliers, uh, the community, and even the environment. So it's really, we're trying to reset management practice because, well, this is a situation where we need to reset the economy anyway. So this is as good a time as any that after, if and when, and I hope we, it is an, a when, that we come out of this pandemic, we will be a stronger nation because business leaders will realize that they have a key role in really taking care of the people through the magic of business activity. So those are the areas of advocacy that uh, we have been using throughout all this time. And I'm most excited about the Covenant for Shared Prosperity because it's something that will really um, involve the businesses themselves, saying that this is the direction to go. Serpin, what are some of the main practices of humanistic management, the major areas where management can actually practice that approach? Humanistic management essentially says we achieve the organizational goals plus we achieve human development, human flourishing. So we need to define what human development is. When we talk about human development, there are at least seven dimensions so this can become tricky so let's think of a human being as like maybe a flower think of a daisy with a lot of petals right so obviously if you give uh, your wife a flower on valentine's day she's not expecting just a, a flower with one petal that would seem crazy a flower is best or at its best when it's full in bloom 
which means you see all the petals. And that's what we mean by flourishing. Now, human beings are the same. We have different petals. Unfortunately, in management, a lot of these aspects of human development are neglected. So what are these dimensions? Let's start with the first petal, which is health. Human flourishing means becoming healthier. Now, you know, if you look at the statistics, uh, lifestyle diseases like diabetes, uh, coronary diseases, uh, a lot of these related to work stress are quite common. In fact, in some countries like Japan, they have managers just dying on their desks from overwork. Karoshi, they call it. Uh, even among young interns, they have died at work because of stress and they're just interns. So a lot of companies are so goal-oriented, so driven, that they have no sense of taking care of the human body. And other than physical stress, of course, it even extends to ergonomics. A lot of workers spend time in front of computers, but many of these computers are not ergonomic, which means that they literally cause physical injury. Uh, if, if you talk to people working in offices, most of them have back aches, shoulder aches, wrist aches, and they take this as normal. And humanistic managers say, of course it's not normal. You should not be experiencing those. But we take it as part of work. It doesn't have to be. So that's the first thing, health. The next petal is the mind. The ability to think, to understand, to be creative, to innovate, etc. Now, in many companies, if you're a worker and there's a policy, you're, accept, you're, you're expected to accept that as a given. Just follow because it's what the management wants. Now, imagine if you are doing things not knowing why you're doing it. Well, just bring in the robots, which is actually what's going to happen because robots, they don't need to understand why they do things, right? You program them and they do it without question. But human beings are different. If you tell a human being, for example, okay, uh, you know, you're an accountant, but you don't always have to put in all of our income. You know, we can save some taxes if you don't put that in. Well, that's the reason why an accountant took an oath. He is committed to a profession and he has to say, well, sir, that will put our company at risk. We can't do that. That's why you hired me. You want to make sure we do this right. But if you are told not to think, you just do it. And, and this has happened in so many cases. Uh, if you follow the news, last year, uh, there was an indictment of the president, the former president of Volkswagen over the emissions scandal. Because around 2015, I believe, it was discovered that Volkswagen had been cheating on their emissions data. In other words, they were claiming that their diesel cars were emitting a certain level of uh, pollution. But actually, when tested by an independent party, it turns out the pollution level was 40 times higher. And this is a German company, a venerable German company. So, of course, uh, one of the senior engineers is already in jail. So the big question now is, will the CEO be put in jail? But the bigger question is this. Who were the people involved? And you know my favorite question, right? What were they thinking? What were they thinking? German engineering, the venerable name of Volkswagen. That's essentially exposing so many people to disease. Because we know what 40 times of pollutants can do to young children especially. So one of the things we believe in humanistic management is that workers need to be encouraged to think because that's where they will get their ability to innovate, to understand things. As we say in Filipino, magdiskarte, right? Because if you're just waiting for instructions, that's not very value-creating. So that's the second petal, the mental or the cognitive. The third petal is the emotional. Humans develop when they master the, the emotion. So th this can go in two ways. Uh, sometimes people are too timid, so they lack courage. So in a meeting, they might have an idea, but they, they're scared it will be shut down, so they don't mention it. So another 
mentions it and they say, oh shucks, I should have mentioned that. Or they may have an objection to an idea and then they don't voice it. So this is the one side of a lack of emotional development, the lack of confidence. But of course, it can also swing to the other side. Some workers are too pushy, bordering on the arrogant. They think they have all the answers. Some of them literally bully others. This is a sign of emotional immaturity. And when the emotional petal is neglected, one of the effects is mental health problems. There is a tremendous spike in mental health problems in businesses today, ranging from anxiety attacks all the way to depression and even suicide. Why? Because managers think that the worker's mental health is his own problem. But that cannot be the case because most workers spend the majority of their waking time in the workplace. And certainly your workplace affects your mental health. So therefore, we have a more sophisticated understanding now that if human beings are to flourish, their confidence has to be developed. Their sense of worth, their sense of courage that they can speak up even if others disagree, that's fine. I just wanted to put the idea out there. And also to temper their tantrums, their anger, their tendency to to lash out at people who are not like them. And this is a major movement in management, as you know, the movement towards diversity, expecting other, uh, respecting other types of uh, people, right? Coming from different backgrounds, uh, different regions, different preferences, etc. It's all part of emotional intelligence. So that's the, the third petal. The, the fourth petal, we call it the social. The social petal is one of my favorites. It means in the workplace, we develop caring relationships. Uh, in, in management, often relationships become instrumental. As they say in Tagalog, gamitan, right? So on the way up, you step on others. This is not what a workplace is envisioned to be in humanistic management. You're expected to develop uh, what we call fraternal relations. Why is this so important? If you want innovation, you need a high level of trust. What do we mean? If I have an idea, why would I share it with you? Because you might go to the boss and claim it's yours, right? But if I trust you, I will share an idea with you even if it's half-baked. Then you will share your idea with me, which is also half-baked. But guess what? When we put them together, they're a terrific idea. That's what innovation is. So innovation happens only in high trust environments because people have to be willing to share and they are only willing to share if they trust and they're only willing to trust people with whom they feel a connection. This is what the social petal, petal is about. Uh, of course, the social petal also deals with connecting the workers to the world outside. When I was younger, if you were volunteering, let's say to to help with a marginalized community, that was all supposed to be on your own time. But companies have, you know, they're now more woke, as they say. It it started with Habitat for Humanity, right? You can you volunteer your time, it's and it's under company time because companies realize that workers who volunteer are more motivated to actually work because they feel their life has more meaning. The company is more trustworthy because they see the company uh, putting itself out there. So notice that the social petal has those two dimensions. Connection with your workmates and connection with the social world outside. Uh, the next petal, we call it the aesthetic petal. A person who is flourishing enjoys beauty at work. And beauty comes in all forms. For example, you're doing this podcast. This is an aesthetic expression. You are bringing out your experience of beauty in yourself. So when you're refining a video or when a worker uh, polishes a report, uh, improves the way a graph is presented or practices his presentation to management, that's all part of aesthetic. If you fix your workplace so that there's less clutter or if you improve the way an ad is uh, projected to the public, it's all part of aesthetic. Human beings feel that their soul diminish when they don't experience beauty frequently. 
And that's why work cannot be just a task. In the old days, it was called a craft. A craft means you do your work with love because your work is beautiful and the workplace you work in is beautiful. So this experience of aesthetics, which we like to associate with poetry, music, nice movies, even a beautiful sunset, that's also part of work. And, you know, if you, again, look at the standard management textbooks, you will not see the word beauty mentioned even once. And that makes work very stale. Uh, the next two are related. The first one of the last two is moral. The moral petal is extremely important. And the moral petal essentially means when workers do their work, they learn to differentiate right from wrong. This is related to what we are talking earlier about uh, with respect to the mental petal, meaning uh, understanding what we're doing. But this time, it's about understanding what is right. I, I remember one of my interns before. She's a young lady. I think she was 20. She was doing her internship in a fast-moving consumer good company. And she was attending a uh, an advertising brainstorming session. And uh, the people there were suggesting a very risque, you know, very suggestive way of advertising. And she didn't feel comfortable about it. You know, too much sex uh, messaging in the ad. And so she spoke up. But you know, this product is known for that kind of uh, sexy advertising. But she spoke up. She's a 20-year-old girl. And she said to the supervisor, Sir, I was just thinking, I think to get our message across, why don't we try this? And you know, her, her approach actually... Uh, was accepted by the group because it achieved the marketing goal without being seen as malaswa. And, and this is exactly what we mean by the moral petal. You don't have to accept what, what goes on. You can point out certain things. But in many organizations, the moral petal is not very well developed. Why? Because the thinking is, you better do it or you can always look for another job. And this becomes a problem. And finally, and for us, this is probably the most important. We call it the spiritual petal, meaning what is the purpose of our work? Uh, when I ask my students, when are you happier, Monday mornings or Friday afternoons? Well, I think you know the answer. They all rush to say Friday. Why? Because they just can't wait to get out of work. And, and this is a this is a crisis. As we said, we spend most of our waking time at work, right? So how can we manage so that people are excited to come to work every Monday morning? Well, there's one specific way of doing that. Make sure their work is a mission. It's not a job. It's a vocation. And how do you do that? You make sure their ideas count. You make sure they, they know that their work makes a difference. You make sure that they can tell their loved ones when they go home every day that, hey, I suggested this to my manager and he said, let's go for it. You know, of course, a lot of uh, managers say, oh, let's give them more incentives. Oh, let's give them some free microwaves, some free mobile phones. Well, you can only do that for so long. Humans are looking for purpose and they say, and the data is quite strong on this, that the millennials and the upcoming Gen Zs are particularly looking for this because they know they have options. They can disengage and go to another company, even set up their own business. What we're looking for is how do we motivate workers so that they see themselves as self-propelled, that work is something meaningful. So if you summarize all of those uh, seven dimensions, the different petals of the human as a flower, there's a lot for managers to think about. But all of this, just like in the flower, has to be supported by what we call a living wage. A living wage means you make sure your lowest worker is paid enough so that that person can have a decent life. And some, some would say, but isn't that the minimum wage? 
no, the minimum wage is not a decent wage. It's not a living wage. You cannot literally live live as a human being on the minimum wage. And yet, well, this should not be a surprise. Practically all the top companies in this country hire workers starting at minimum wage in many job functions. Well, that should be fine as a start. But there should be a clear path, a very quick path, as long as they're competent, to move to a living wage. And what happens when you have a living wage? Uh, the statistics usually show that a living wage is about double that of uh, the, at least double that of the minimum wage. Just like in the flower, if you have the pistil, which is the middle of the flower, it has enough nourishment and resources, guess what? The petals begin to flourish. If a person doesn't have a living wage, he is so busy worrying about day-to-day expenses that he doesn't have time to develop his moral petal, his health, his courage and emotional maturity. Who has the time for that? And least of all, he doesn't have the time to save and to plan for a future, right? So the living wage is key, but it's just the minimum. The living wage is the starting strategy of the humanistic manager. But this has to be followed up with specific steps for developing each petal. For the emotion, making sure to affirm people when they have good ideas. For the mental uh, aspect, make sure that they can think and understand what they're doing. For the moral, be a good role model to them. Tell them what, why this is right and this is wrong. Uh, social by building good relationships, real team building, not just bringing them to beaches and then having sports. That's not team building. Team building really is connecting people with each other. And of course, as I mentioned, the, the all important sense of purpose and vocation. That you know, even if you're a BPO agent or a call center agent, that's a lot of emotional labor. You're dealing with the frustrations and often the anger of your customers. This, is, this has led to a lot of mental health issues. But if a call center agent realizes that the person on the other end of the line is suffering, is encountering a quality of life issue because let's say his Spotify is not working or his bank account seems to be in error, that person is in anguish. And you are the instrument to help that person address this issue. Of course, that, that client will be acting out, right? saying some foul words. But if you know that your mission is to make the life of this person better, that and, and the psychological uh, literature is very strong on this, that sense of mission will help you become a more resilient call center agent, even as you deal with potentially you know, angry words and sometimes outright verbal abuse from this person. So we can see, therefore, that there is no conflict between human development an effective and efficient service. But the main difference is that the human person is taken care of. So the goals are achieved, but the human person is taken care of. While you were discussing, I'm trying to picture myself in the organization and how humanistic processes could actually thrive. And I'm thinking there has to be some sort of transformation for that to happen. And you've mentioned some of the initial actions that the company should do. But definitely, in terms of management, there has to be some form of re-education of managers, maybe even re-education of all the executives, board members, you know, with regards to humanistic approaches. Is there a venue like that facilitated by the International Humanistic Management Association? The International Humanistic Management Association does this through materials, you know, ex- uh, books, articles, and there are also some executive training sessions. Uh, this is being done virtually. The thing though, is that you're right. It's really a transformational event that shifts thinking. That's why I shared my own personal uh, example earlier. I-, I was essentially an SOB manager. I mean, let's put it out there. But after I had to face the in effect, the damage that I had caused on my subordinates, that was a transformative event for me. Then I had to re-educate myself by 
reading a different set of materials from what I was exposed to. So you have to seek it out. Uh, the covenant for shared prosperity and the pandemic, I think, are transformative events. Even last year, the business roundtable in the U.S., which is like the bastion of capitalism in the U.S., these are the top CEOs, released a statement that they said the stockholder is not number one. And this was a fantastic statement to make because the business roundtable is basically a follower of Milton Friedman. You know Milton Friedman, right? The economist who said that the only social responsibility of business is profit. Well, why? Because after the global financial crisis, after so many crises, after realizing the, global, the, the growing inequality, in countries, and this has led to tremendous populism. What do we mean? As the inequality in countries increase, more and more of the marginalized sections of the population look for a savior. Even if the savior is a dictator, an autocrat, or just plain disrespectful of the law. This is a global phenomenon. And, and once you have authoritarians, dictators, and outright criminals as leaders of countries, businesses suffer too. So this is a, that's why businesses are realizing that it cannot be business as usual. So the, the covenant that I shared earlier is also that, that realization on the part of Philippine business associations. But this was also triggered by the pandemic. But a lot of work needs to be done because, as you said, a lot of these senior managers do not have the time to really go through formal education. The transformation will have to be through reflection and self-education because uh, once you see the practices of others, then you realize, oh, there, there is another way to do this. And then you ask these other practitioners, how do you do that? Can you share that with my company? And then we expect that these ideas will spread. But others, of course, will not be able to shift because they're too hardwired under the traditional management. But I'm happy to say that the next generation is coming. The next generation is coming. They care about people. They care about diversity. They care about the environment. They are coming. The only question is, can they come soon enough? But what we've seen is uh, younger CEOs below 30 are setting up very successful young businesses. And for the big businesses, we have this global trend towards what they call ESG reporting. ESG stands for Environment, Social, and Governance. That means the biggest companies are now required to disclose how much they're paying their workers, how much uh, pollutants they're releasing to the environment, all of this. This is a major movement now. So who knows, maybe the, the pressure of public scrutiny, even stockholders checking. I remember I attended one uh, shareholders meeting of a local power company and one elderly man stood up during the question and answer and asked, uh, Mr. Chairman, I noticed that all of your board members are men. May I strongly suggest that you already have women in your board? And this was 2017, I think it was. And this is a power company. And it, it was a real problem. And they could not, of course, get out of that question. But the chairman was humble enough to say, we realize this is a problem and we're working on this. Uh, our requirements are quite exacting, so it's not easy to find appropriate directors. But the last time I checked, they already have uh, two women in the board in that company. So which means there will be pressure from all sectors that will slowly but surely pressure executives to rethink the way they are doing things. But, you know, all of this has to come together. Business schools have to do their share. Consumers have to be more discerning. If they buy something, they always have to ask, but are the people being taken care of? I remember I wrote a column on uh, the incidents in about 2000s, uh, 
try to remember. Maybe that was around 2015 when Foxconn, the outsourced manufacturer of iPhone, they had this experience. They were having suicides in the factory among the workers who were doing the iPhone. And they investigated this. And they found out that a lot of the workers did not have rest days. They were not being paid properly for overtime. Of course, they were sequestered from their families because these phones have to be very confidentially manufactured. So they live in dorms. And the dorms were infested with cockroaches. So the strange thing is that when they initially discovered this, the, the response from the company was to set up nets outside the dorms so that even if you jump, you will not die. But later on, Apple was taken to task for this because they could not make the defense that, no, they're just our subcontractor. These, these are not our employees. Well, the, the consumers were already sophisticated. So now Apple claims that it is regularly auditing the factories and the working conditions of the workers. But I think that consumers should be more demanding. When you buy an iPhone, it should have a lot and a location number. So you can check in your GIS map what factory it was manufactured in and then you can zoom in through Google Earth and see and then there's a certification there on the safety of that factory and so on. This can all be done. The technology to do this is there. Because remember, you, they did this with blood diamonds. They, they have the Kimberley process, right? If you buy a diamond, there's a certificate that says that uh, there, were, there were no conflict, uh, you know, uh, because rebels in certain parts of Africa uh, or some gangs use force in the supply chain. And they made the same discovery for chocolate, right? Child labor, even the biggest chocolate companies were, were found to be part of a supply chain that does involve child labor. So more and more consumers will have to ask those difficult questions if they eat chocolate from Cadbury or whatnot, they have to ask those questions. Was everybody taken care of? And this is already a trend. France was one of the first. Uh, in the early 2000s, France already required in their CSR law that companies have to be responsible for their whole supply chain. And French law will hold a French company accountable if they discover child labor in any part of the supply chain. But, you know, France was way ahead of its time. Now, this is already being looked into. If you look at ESG reporting, companies now have to account for even the working conditions in the contracting firms, not just in their own companies. So I think uh, it's a combination of reflection, uh, education, public pressure, and then new reporting systems. Because one of the problems is that companies have mainly been reporting using financial statements, right? And this is one of the root of the problem. Because if you look at a balance sheet, the most important asset of a company is not even there. Who am I talking about? The human beings. They're not even in the balance sheet. Go figure. If you have a measuring system that doesn't even report the most important thing, you will have problems, right? And even uh, accountants now realize this. That's why the, the leaders in the ESG reporting movement, the environment, uh, society, and governance reporting movement are also the accounting firms. They realize that this is something that they can help address. Of course, it's also a huge consulting opportunity for them. But, you know, if they are part of the problem, they can be part of the solution, right? So I, I welcome that as long as it's authentic, honest reporting. So those are some of the transformative opportunities. But ultimately, it will have to be the decision of the managers themselves. Will they change the way they think? My guess is if they don't decide to change, they will be replaced because the younger generation will not stand for a lot of the things that my generation got away with. That's just my thinking. Sir, how long do you think it would take to create a certain level of penetration among companies here in the Philippines when it comes to humanistic management? As a social scientist, I cannot really predict 
time frames because as i said this will take the decision making uh, process of the managers themselves to kick in we can only estimate that the pressure from the young generations the millennials the gen z's and now the the gen alpha of no, the next cycle will slowly create so many new companies with new ways of doing things that really engage the whole person that if big companies don't reinvent themselves they will slowly be rendered obsolete also because of the way technology works right more and more of services and product delivery will be done online you know 3d printing is here if you in the future you can get a 3d printer download the design for a cell phone print it yourself at home to your specifications no i i expect at least no more than 5 years that we will have significant penetration in the top companies but it will never be complete it will never be total because human nature is such that selfishness is part of our makeup therefore there will always be managers who will use other people for their gain without concern for those people that's that's the way it is and although government should step in and you know say that's not right governments are also they also comprise human beings who are also themselves subject to selfishness and self-interest right so for example labor abuses are rampant but how many workers can afford to sue a major company and so government has to step in moto proprio meaning on their own but prior to president duterte coming in no president told businesses that you better regularize your workers he did it and i spoke to companies because many of them were rushing to regularize some companies even regularized 10,000 employees and i asked them so what happened here of course they were saying it had nothing to do with the president's quote unquote threats they were saying oh we had planned to do that you know and we thought this was a good time to do it okay so the question in my mind was why didn't you do it before so but i think rather than specifying a specific time frame and I'm, i'm thinking a lot will depend on how quickly the young people begin to set up companies that give alternative options the effect of that is that if you have young talented graduates and they say should i work with this big company that i know doesn't treat me well or go to this company that will listen to me give me equity and i can be in a vibrant workplace hmm. more and more the option will be obvious and so the companies have to step up if only to compete for talent so but uh, it's an open question how soon that can happen i'm hoping sooner rather than later maybe five years my fearless forecast if i have to give a period <laughs> what would be the core sir i've learned a lot about humanistic management and you went into deep detail when it comes to the different aspects of humanistic management for a normal person listening to this podcast like a starting manager a junior manager what would be the top three things that he could do to become or at least learn more about humanistic management the first thing he will need to do is to ask himself do i care about people and this is a question i always ask my students in the mba program why do you want to be managers They say, oh, I want more responsibility. I want to improve my level of living because I take care of a family, which is all fine. But I remind them, if you're a manager, your decisions affect people. Literally, your decisions can make life living hell for another human being. And you have the power to do it. Not only his life at work, the way you make him feel at work affects the way he will behave at home and the way he affects his family that's a lot of power doctors lawyers engineers they have their own field but they deal with the human body engineers deal with physical things managers deal with human beings and this is this is really a powerful function so i tell them if you don't care about people please don't be managers of course they laugh at me because there's already too much hell out there people are literally so stressed out that the mental health issues are really spiking through the roof so that's the first question reflect why do i want to be a manager now caring for people is not in opposition to having a higher standard of living to having 
status and responsibility. In fact, they complement each other. Imagine if you're a manager and you can make decisions that improve the lives of people. Wow, that's fantastic. I'm reminded of Dan Price, the founder CEO of this company in Seattle, Washington. It's called Gravity Payments. They Their target are the medium businesses in terms of credit card payment. And the president, Dan Price, realized that he, he was receiving a million dollars a month in, in pay. And yet, oh, no, I think that was annual. I'm trying to remember now. Yeah, that was annual in pay, a million. And he found out his employees were earning around 35K. And he looked at the numbers and the living wage in that area is about 70. So the people were earning half. And he suddenly announced after some deep reflection that he was going to work so that the minimum wage in his company would be 70K. By the way, the 70K is not accidental. He looked at the research because people think having more money makes you happy, right? Psychologists did a study and they found out having money makes you happy up to a point, around 70 to 75K. After that, having more money has no effect on your happiness anymore because your needs are met. And so that was his basis. So all of his employees over a three-year period will get the 70. And that was the plan. A lot of people criticized him for that. And then he was asked why he did that. Well, because I realized people can't even make ends meet. He found out some of his workers were having multiple jobs just to, to make ends meet. And when the landlord suddenly increases the rent by $200, everything collapses. And they have to take a second job, sometimes even a third job. So he, he felt he was responsible for that. So, and so a lot of the uh, media criticized it. They called it socialism. You know how it is and that it would collapse. Guess what? If you Google uh, gravity payments, their revenues increased. Many of their workers moved their houses closer so they don't commute anymore, retired their debts, and there was a tremendous baby boom in the company. Because if people are no longer insecure about their income, they plan the future, right? And so the company is now more financially successful than ever. When the pandemic came, of course, the revenues were cut in half. And so rather than laying people off, he had a conference with his people. And he said, we're in dire straits. We may have to put our best ideas together so that we don't have to let anyone go. Guess what? Some of the employees came forward and said, I'll take a pay cut. Some of the employees even said, I'm taking zero salary just so we don't let people go. And not a single employee has been laid off even with the pandemic. And again, the business has grown. So how did this happen? Because Dan Price asked himself, do I care about my people? That's the first thing. When he realized he cared, then he asked himself, how do I express my caring? So that's the first thing. The second thing is learn to really listen to people. Nowadays, management, I like to call it management by remote control. You know, it's like a video game. You look at dashboards in your smartphones, you look at numbers. Of course, uh, this was already the practice before looking at financial statements, but now it's even more that because everything is done through, we call it business intelligence, big data. You have all the graphs. And I always tell my students, that's not management, that's a video game. You have to dig under those figures. So if you see those numbers going up, mm, somebody seems to be doing a good job. Why don't you call that person? Hey. I'm seeing some nice figures here. How are you feeling about your work? Oh, it's great. And then, so how are you doing this? Can you, can you tell me so we can share it with others? You know, to, to get a call from a manager because you're doing good work, that makes any subordinate feel good. And some of those people will go the extra mile for you. And all you did was to reach out and listen. So listening is key. Unfortunately, again, going back to our original insight, Listening as a skill is never taught in business school. It was not covered in any of our courses. When actually, it's probably the single most important thing that the humanistic manager does. In fact, I remember Tom Peters, he had a simple formula for it. He called it MBWA, management by walking around. Rather than being a manager who's stuck in the office, you know, uh, you go around, see how your people are, take notes, Listen to them, their ideas, and then act on those ideas. 
The third thing would be, I think, delegating. You know, it's difficult for managers to delegate because managers get a sense of pride from knowing the answer, of being the go-to guy. So the subordinate has a problem, then he waits. Boss, we have this problem. What should we do? Then the manager will say, ah, do this, do this, do that. That's easy. But guess what? If you keep doing that, the subordinate does not develop. And again, one of my greatest fears, if your subordinates will just wait for you to give them instructions, well, that's the definition of a robot. Just just get a robot, then you the robot will come. Sir, what should I do with this problem? Oh, you just press a button. Try changing the approach and say, hey, I'm glad you brought this problem to my attention. So I'm seeing that you know sales is dropping or I'm seeing that supplier delivery is delayed by three days. Now, how is this going to hurt us, you think? Then the person begins to think, well, if we get that delivery three days late, well, we have commitments with client A, client C, and you know how those guys are. They're going to blow their top. So you say, okay, so which client do you think will be the most upset? Client A, of course. Well, what do you think? What can we do? Well, I think we better tell them now, manage their expectation. Then you tell your subordinate, that that makes sense. You want to try that? Okay, see? So rather than giving the answer straight, you use your listening skill, and then you got out ideas from this person. And then look at the ideas, which you think you would have said in the beginning anyway, and then tell the person, try it. Now, what's the advantage? You could, have, you could just have told them, well, we have to manage expectations, call client A and C and tell them we might be delayed, but we'll give them a discount on the next order, you know, to make it worth their while with our deepest apologies. But does that help the subordinate grow? No. But if you delegate, then not only are you helping this person, you're also freeing your time so that you can concentrate on other things, more strategic things. And when you have to move on, you have a successor waiting in line. So these are, I would consider, the three most important things. Ask yourself if, if you care about people and make management direction, uh, decisions accordingly. Learn to listen, go around and listen. And more importantly, act on what you hear. And third, enable your people to act. Delegate. If you just do these three things, there will be a transformative effect. And you can see that more and more of your subordinates will look forward to Monday. And it will not even cost you more, actually. There is no budget item for any of that. Because, you know, when companies say, oh, we need to motivate people. Okay, should we increase our incentive? Should we do this? Well, you could do that. I'm not saying don't do that. But I'm saying make sure they get the living wage. If they're not, make sure they're, they have a path towards the living wage. But apply those three things. Caring management, focused on listening, and enabling others, the subordinates, to act. Investment. To transform an organization into a humanistic organization with humanistic managers and humanistic leaders. Um, and is it something that the business can afford? I think this is the, the basic question of cost, right? Yeah. And and actually, it starts with the living wage, right? So Because that, that exactly. would be the core. And, and the development process of listening because that triggers creativity and innovation and of course uh, delegation but i think we need to answer it also from an accounting point of view because there's a confusion among a lot of managers that a unit cost is the same as a labor rate a labor rate is how much you pay your worker per unit of time whereas a unit cost is how much you pay your worker per unit of output and, and so when people think, oh, it would be expensive to pay people that much, I can't afford that. They're missing a key point because the most basic example is this. Suppose you're paying a person 100 pesos per hour and then he produces one unit of output. So you think, well, if I pay him more, then that doubles my expense, right? If I double my labor rate, that doubles my expense. But how can I afford that? Then the answer to that is, but remember, when you were paying him 100, he was producing one unit. But suppose you pay him 200 and he now produces three units. You get it? So the relationship between labor rate and output is not linear. When you pay people more, actually you harness a lot of their capacity so that they're now able to actually multiply three times, four times, sometimes five times the output. So if you're thinking small, meaning we're quote-unquote, starving our workers by not paying them well enough. 
unknown to us, we're actually limiting our top line. So we think we're saving on expense. Actually, we're starving the top line because a creative person will seek out, discover, and convert opportunities that an underpaid person will not ever move on. So looking simply at labor rate as a measure of expense is very short-sighted. The ultimate goal is actually the top line. How do we harness the creative and productive powers of people so that they are thinking like CEOs themselves and they take initiative. I remember one story of this uh, employee from a fast-moving consumer good company. And she was doing her shopping on a weekend and then she discovered this peanut butter which they produce. It's their company that produces it, although she's in the accounting division, not in manufacturing. And she noticed that the labels are all, you know, askew, not properly placed on the peanut butter bottles. And then she looked at it and then she said, this can't be. Now, normally we would expect, she would say, those guys at manufacturing screwed up again. But the way she's trained is she thinks of the good of the company. So she got the peanut butter to buy it because she couldn't stand customers seeing it. The label was askew. But as soon as she pulled out one bottle, there was one more bottle behind it. Similarly, so she got that one. And so there were 10 bottles all in all, and she bought all of them. She didn't need that much peanut butter, but she just couldn't stand having peanut butter bottles from their company displayed, and it doesn't meet the standard of quality. And so that next Monday, she brought all of the bottles to the manufacturing manager and said, hey, we have a problem with these bottles. I pulled them out because they don't look good. We should look at what happened here. And on the spot, the factory manager reimbursed her. Now, this is not a policy of the company. It's not covered by policy. But see the initiative of both the accounting sale, uh, the accounting person during a weekend to take on that role and the initiative of the factory manager to reimburse her knowing he will be audited for that and he will probably get a memo saying, why did you do that? But both of them were acting on the value that quality is the most important thing and we need to act. So this is initiative. This is initiative that can only be harnessed if you develop it. And this is the top level of competition that we're after. So the investments will be substantial, but if it's done properly, the returns will be tremendous. And as anyone who understands investment knows, you look at returns, not at the cost. And business is about spending money to make money. If you think you're saving money by underpaying people, you're not in the right game. And humanistic management gives us a path to convert those investments to actual productivity that is for the good of the whole company. Sir, what if it is under an incentive scheme or a commission scheme? Would that count as part of humanistic practice? Incentive schemes can be part of humanistic practice, definitely, but it cannot be the core. Because for example, let's say you're paid sub-living wage and then the only way to get the living wage is through the incentive. Well, guess what? That will influence the social petal, the moral petal. What do I mean? To meet my quote-unquote incentive quota, I will you know, cannibalize the territory of another person or steal his lead you know, or cut corners. And that's the moral issue, right? Uh, you cannot tempt people. They're human. And that's why we've seen a lot of uh, companies move away from ranking systems and some of the most prominent ones are Microsoft, for example. Microsoft was on a ranking system for a long time. But I think about five years ago, they dropped it. They said one of the reasons that innovation suffered in Microsoft and so that we are not as successful as we were before. It's because of the ranking system. Because why would you share if it might affect your ranking? Or if you're the last two, let's say they only give the incentives for the top 10 and you're 10 and 11, well, I wouldn't mind subverting number 10 so that I'm 11, I move up, right? I mean, these, these are human beings. They shouldn't be toyed with like that. But of course, if you have the living wage and you have the proper development system, and then you want to incentivize. I would favor group incentives because then people realize that they work together. Because remember, every time you give an individual incentive, you're saying this accomplishment was mainly because of you. Now, as any manager knows, nothing in a company happens because of one person. It just doesn't happen. A manager who has an excellent meeting owes as much to the secretary who helped set up that meeting. In fact, owes as much to the technical people who made the projector work, whatnot. So again, it's a very 
myopic view. In, in the US, nowadays, a CEO can be earning as much as 300 times the median salary of the employees. That's crazy. Why would a CEO be worth 300 times the average employee? Because he's on top? In fact, in the 70s, that was about 80 to 1. So why did it become 300 to 1 from 80 to 1? Because more and more thought that it's all about paying the big guy. And this is what caused all of the inequality. And guess what? If you incentivize too many people at the top, they begin to do creative accounting. That's why we saw the subprime mortgage crisis, Enron, and so on. This is the problem with incentives. They have to be handled with care. I suppose they're a lot like atomic power. You can use them, but you better know that they can blow up in your face. Because people who don't get the incentives will say, why did he get that incentive? I was part of that. But you know, this is this is always a difficult discussion for, for businesses, banking, incentives. My bottom line assessment is that managers who don't know how to manage will tend to use more incentives because they don't know how to manage. So they treat people like dolphins or dogs or you know, those in Disneyland, because in Disneyland you can have or uh, seals or dolphins jumping through hoops and dogs how do you train them through incentives so they treat people like that and that can work as part of a total plan it cannot be the main thing otherwise you generate what i call suboptimal behavior the stock market is a huge incentive system company executives have stock equity obviously so when they deliver superior results their stock value goes up and that's part of their compensation in effect right but guess what that incentivizes executives to practice creative accounting in the case of volkswagen some creative environmental reporting so what's the difference whether you're a low-level salesperson or a ceo of a global company the same distorting effect of incentives can happen if that is the main thing meaning if it's such a huge portion of your compensation. But as a topping, I don't mind. And especially if it's given broadly to groups that are co-responsible. But this is an open question that every manager has to answer. What would be the proper role of incentive? But incentives cannot be a substitute for good management. It cannot be. That's it for today. Let me know what you think, send in some questions, and perhaps share this episode with people you know who might be interested to listen. Till the next episode. Cheers!